The rest of us, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Father, we come to you needing a word from our God. We thank you that you've given to us the written word, and we pray, O oh God, that as we uh, consider it together, that you'll expand our thoughts and that you will expand our faith and that we will trust you, our Lord, our high priest, more than ever before. We pray for our children and children's worship, and Lord, it's a delight to see them so happily heading back to this time in which they are made special and which they are brought before the throne of you, our God, and taught to worship you. Father, grant that they may be able to abandon themselves to you in faith. They may receive salvation. They may worship you fully. And for us, O oh God, change our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my uh, first communicant classes that I was able to teach uh, as a pastor um, and had a, a number of, uh, uh, I guess they were mostly junior high schoolers, and I think back to that class and I look at where they are now, and it's kind of exciting to see what God uh, did in their lives. But uh, we were teaching through the catechism, and the way the class would work is the kids would uh, work on the lessons during the week, and we would meet once a month. And uh, as they finished a lesson, they would go over it with their parents, and the parents would sign it to just so that the parents then are discipling their children. And it was just a, a really neat program. And I remember when we were going over the offices that Christ fulfills as our Redeemer, that he's our prophet, priest, and king. And uh, the, the kids were kind of confused about this prophet and priest thing and, and what's the difference and what is each one and explain that to us. And, and uh, I, I love being able to explain the difference and to think of a prophet as recognizing the prophet really represents God to the people, right? That's the role of the prophet is to, to be God's representative here in front of the people. That's why you have a prophet like Nathan who would go up to David, King David, the most powerful man there was, and say to him, you're guilty because you, uh, you took your soldier's wife. And, uh, and David didn't say, well, I know how to handle this. I'll take your head off, right? He didn't do But instead, he's convicted and repents, and, and the prophet didn't have to worry because he was God's representative, and so in representing God, he knew that he was in that spot. Whereas a priest, on the other hand, represents the people to God. He stands before God on our behalf, which is why in the Old Testament, the priest would always go before God on our behalf with blood. Because he, he knew that he had to have a, a, a sacrifice to be able to offer as he was that, that uh, <coughs> advocate for us, that mediator. 
Well, uh, we need that desperately today. We need a mediator to stand between us and God the Father. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now, the, the Hebrews who received this letter, these were Jews in the first century who were living in this transition time from the old administration of the covenant of grace to the new administration of the covenant of grace. And they're, they're, they're walking through this time. But in walking through this time, when the author of Hebrews brings up a high priest, their, their ears perk up. Like, oh, oh, now you're talking our language. We know this. We understand high priests. We would go to the high priest on a regular basis with, with our, our, our daily sacrifices. We would go to the priest in our area and we would offer our daily sacrifices. And every year we'd make the pilgrimage down to Jerusalem and we would offer the sacrifices uh, on, on Passover and the, the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. And we knew that the high priest would then take those and, and make those sacrifices on our behalf. They understood the concept of a high priest. They understood the high priest representing them before God. And as he begins, the author of, of Hebrews <coughs> is telling them, Jesus is this high priest. They're then able to take this, this old administration of the covenant of grace concept of high priest, and now they're understanding the role that Jesus plays, and particularly why he had to be a human like us, because he's our high priest. He's representing us to God so that he had to be like us. And they began to understand that and they began to see that it was an invitation for them to trust Jesus as the high priest. And it is an invitation to us as well to trust Jesus as our high priest. And to do that, I think that the, there's, there's a lot in this passage. Um, there are times in which I'm doing my study and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, why did I not set aside 12 years to go through the book of Hebrews? It would have been much more uh, consistent because there's just, just so much there. I mean, we can look at, and you notice the, the emphasis that was in the passage about um, that uh, because we had flesh and blood, he had to have flesh and blood and, and he had to be like us if he's going to be tempted like we're tempted and, and all this, that, and there's so much time that we could spend on that. But instead, I, I want to focus on what I think is, is really the, the, the most significant issue, which is what did Jesus do for us? What did Jesus do as the high priest? What did he accomplish? And I think that the passage gives us two things that he accomplished. And the first is that he conquered death for us. So if we're going to trust that Jesus is our high priest, we're trusting that he conquered death for us. Look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Death is all around us, right? Sadly, we're reminded of it more than we want to be reminded of it. As I was writing this sermon... Um, I was, it was on, on the very day that I was writing it, at the very moments when I'm writing it, uh, a very dear friend of ours was undergoing uh, what turned out to be a, a six-hour surgery um, to remove uh, a, a malignant tumor from his brain. And the, the doctor talked about there were a few times that he had to just, just walk away to take a break because he was so exhausted as he's working on this. And 
Um, and uh, recognizing what this means and recognizing just how difficult this tumor is and this type of cancer that my friend is facing and knowing we don't know what the future is. And my mind is, is turning over this and, and is, is he going to make it through the surgery? What's going to happen after the surgery? We just didn't know. This week we had the, the Highland Park uh, shootings on the 4th of July and seven people were, were murdered and it seemed senselessly. And, and for, for, for what? And, and we look at that, and, and it's, it's heartbreaking. But that's not all, right? We, we, we read of death at, in, in all around us. The uh, assassination of uh, Shinzo Abe, uh, former prime minister of Japan, and, and, and someone going to the trouble to, to make their own gun in order to kill someone. And it's just something I, I don't understand. And, and so we see death around us all the time. We read about it, and, and we're aware of it. And, and yet I read this passage, and I see, but Jesus conquered death. It's so easy by seeing death around us to forget that simple truth. Death is not the final. It's not the final word. Jesus conquered death. Last week we talked about death, and we talked about death from the standpoint that it's, it's a separation from God. We looked at Adam and Eve, and we recognize that we see the moment of their death, which is the moment when they, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what was their response upon hearing the voice of the, or the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden? They hid themselves, thus demonstrating that they had indeed died, that there was this, this separation from God. We read about the death of Jesus in which his, his death is shown when he upon the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And recognizing that, that separation between Jesus and God the Father that has, that has transpired. And he sees it, and that's the death that he died at that moment. And recognizing that death is something more than we, we tend to think of it. But we're also very aware of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. This great promise that Jesus has conquered death. Some of you maybe have at least heard of, if you haven't read the book by John Owen, uh, the great Puritan writer entitled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And just think about that title. In, in one sense, you read the title and it's like, okay, I get it, right? When death died, by the God of life dying. The irony of that is magnificent. And it's tremendous. And it's a message of such incredible hope. There are times in which we're, we're dealing with, with death and we can go back even to just that title, the death of death and the death of Christ, to remember that Jesus as our high priest has conquered death. I want us to consider that truth a little more closely. <clears throat> the fact that he conquered death means that he destroyed the power of death. In verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. To render powerless is a word that, that means to make idle, 
Okay, so if you think of something that's got this, this uh, dynamic existence and all of that, that dynamic existence is now placed into idol. I think of it as, if we think of death as, as a, a, a running car and Jesus went out and turned off the car and took away the keys. And now it's just idle. Now it's not going anywhere. Now there it is. It's done. It's rendered powerless. It's what he has done to death. Death stalks us from birth. Isn't the old saying, there are two certainties in life, right? Death and taxes. Not that that's horribly cynical, <laughs> but, but that's the, the, the reality and that what we see. And, and sometimes we think more about the taxes than we think about death. But, but nonetheless, death does stalk us. And, and we see it even in uh, our, our popular culture and artistic uh, renditions of the, the Grim Reaper, right? And sometimes you'll, you'll see an individual walking and you see the Grim Reaper right behind them and we recognize that death is stalking us from the time that we are born and it continually stalks us and it leaves us in a, in a place of uncertainty because we never know when we will pass away. But Christ has done something amazing. In His death, He has taken death from being the one who stalks us to being the servant the doorkeeper who opens up for us the door and rolls out the carpet for us to enter in to see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's now the role that death plays in the life of the believer. He's no longer an enemy to fear, but a servant who will open up the door for us to enter into the presence of our God. I want you to think about death for a moment as we see it within Scripture in particular in the New Testament, the way that Jesus describes for us what death is in our life. And there are a few occasions in which Jesus doesn't necessarily have a, a chapter in which it's entitled, hey, I'm going to tell you about death. But he tells us about death in various places. And one of them is at, at the time when he is himself about to die. And he's hung upon the cross. And beside him are the, the two criminals. And they're casting insults at him until finally one of them recognizes this isn't right. And he stands up to, well, stands up, but begins to uh, verbally stands up to, uh, to defend Jesus. And he says, look, we're getting what we're due. We're guilty, but this man has done nothing wrong. Don't you fear God even now? And then he turns to Jesus, and we read what he says. He says, <clears throat> Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Now, there's so much that we can get out of it. There's a devotional element of this that is beautiful to, to recognize those words from Jesus and the recognition that I'm going to be with you. It's not that you're going to be in paradise and I'll catch up later, but you're going to be in paradise with me. But there's also a, a, another theological truth that he says, Today. He says this to a man who is nailed to a cross. A man who knows that this day he will die. There's no question. For all of us, we don't know. We never know exactly the day that we're going to die. This man knew. He knew exactly when he was going to die. And Jesus says to him, this day, this day in which you're going to die, recognize that this day you will be with me in paradise. You will close your eyes to this world and you will open them up to the glories of heaven. 
That's the promise that he gives to this man who is a believer, who has turned to him in faith. That's the promise for us who are Christians about death. Death's power has been destroyed. In Luke chapter 16, again in Luke, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus. And you remember the words that he says to Lazarus, or it says about Lazarus. He says, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now a parable is something that you don't want to find meaning for every little word that's there. That's, that's, it's not an allegory. A parable is that it's the, the idea that you've got para and balo. Balo means to throw and para means alongside. So you throw out a truth alongside a story and it's a single truth. But in the midst of that, Jesus is describing heaven and in describing heaven, he gives us something of a knowledge of what is before us. And what was there for Lazarus? He says Lazarus suffered throughout his life but at the moment that he died, he was taken to that place of Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort that the suffering is all gone because death has been rendered powerless. And they're taken to that. And that's our hope. Death is powerless. Paul gives us an image in, in one sense, maybe one of our few uh, firsthand glimpses of heaven. There was a time in Paul's life in which he was preaching the gospel and, believe it or not, folks didn't like it. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him. And I believe that the, the scripture record shows us that in, in reality, he died at that point and then came back to life. And he experienced this and he writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. as He says, I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And I like that he says, on behalf of such a man I'll boast. <laughs> that's, that's boastworthy. But you see what he does is he gives us a little bit of a glimpse. That as he tasted death in his life, and his soul was removed from his body for a, for a moment, and he saw glories that he can't even write about. It's too rich. This is what the New Testament says awaits us through death. You see, death is rendered powerless. He destroyed the power of death. But there's more. I feel like one of those TV salesmen, right? right? But there's more. You also get four balloons. No, um, he, he goes on and he says that he also freed us from the fear of death. Not only did he destroy the power of death, but he frees us from the fear of death. We look at verse uh, 15. And that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The fear of death enslaves us. I, I read a uh, story, I, I don't know if it's verified, but it's uh, purported to be written by a, a driver for, uh, who had, has driven a, a race car on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He said there are a number of people that have, have died on that uh, speedway, but he said as a driver, you never look at the spot where they, where they crashed. He said no one has ever actually been declared dead there. They take them off and they always declare them dead elsewhere. They even work really hard that after there's been a, a, a fatal crash, they immediately paint over the spot so that no one knows. So there's no memorial for the people who've died. It's kind of a secret. and They kind of keep it off to the, to the side and they don't even think about it. Why? 
It's that fear of death. It affects the way that they, they walk through life. The fear of death was the strength in Nebuchadnezzar's threat to the Hebrew people. As he said, unless you bow down to this idol that I've, that I've made, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Right? Now there are three, and, and we love looking at the victory of the three. They didn't compromise, right? And they went in, and there was a fourth one, and they were rescued. We, we get all that. But how many Hebrews were there who did bow down? Some of them compromised. And what led them to that compromise was the fear of death. In the third century, there was tremendous persecution against the Christian church. And during this time, the uh, Roman edict demanded that uh, Christians would uh, have to offer sacrifice to the uh, Roman gods. And to prove it, they had to sign a, a document that said they had done precisely that. Some Christian leaders were asked to give up copies of Scripture. Now, they didn't have, like us, you know, multiple copies of Scripture on their phone and, and in their, uh, because it wasn't mass-produced. So they were giving up something that was truly sacred. And many Christian leaders did that. And there were many uh, lay people who were not ordained Christian leaders who refused, and they took up leadership in the church when, when this occurred. Well, after the edict was lifted... It created a, a challenge for the church. What do we do with what they call these lapse leaders and these lapsed Christians? And some didn't want them to ever even be allowed to be members again and wanted them thrown out of the church. And others said, no, there's grace. But what was it that gave power to that edict? The fear of death. Even for believers, even for gospel ministers who've been found above reproach, they find themselves in this place when they're facing the threat of death, that the fear of death has now enslaved them. We understand the words that the author of Hebrews uses here about those who through the fear of death have been enslaved their entire lives. The power of the fear of death is tremendous. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ says to us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus gives us a command that says we shouldn't be afraid of death, right? And here we are. Why do we fear death? I think of a few reasons. One of them that I see is because it's unknown. We don't really know what death is from the other side. We only see it from one side, right? And it's not lovely from there. There's also an uncertainty. What happens after? We're uncertain. And even as Christians, sometimes the doubts come in. And we're not sure. The loss of loved ones. We know that we'll be separated from our loved ones and we can't bear that the finality that death is it all of these are reasons why we fear death I read a story uh, that was recorded by Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia after his first wife passed away 
and he was driving to the funeral, and he says he was driving with his children, and he wants to comfort them. He pulls up to a traffic light behind this huge uh, uh, moving van, moving truck, and he sees this massive truck, and he looks out, and he sees that the sun is, is hitting it so that there's this, this huge uh, shadow that's cast over this uh, lot. And he looks to his children, and he says, Kids, which would you prefer, to be run over by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? And his daughter said, Daddy, by the, by the shadow, because it can't do us any harm. And he said, You must know that Jesus was run over by the truck so that your mommy would only be run over by the shadow. And that's a beautiful picture. That's a pastor shepherding his children with truth. That's a pastor shepherding us even today with truth to understand that Jesus frees us from the fear of death because the truck of death ran over him and we will only have the shadow pass over us. That's hope. He conquered death for us so that Psalm 23, 4 David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Those are true words that we hear David say, and we know that they're true, and we recognize it as a reality in our life because we recognize the reality of Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. In Revelation 5, John is shown the book of life. The book in which every name of every person who will live forever is written down. All of the elect of God are written in this book, but the book has been closed and sealed up with seven seals so that none of them will be saved. And they look around the world and there's no one who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And John begins to weep bitterly until an angel comes up to him and says, and one of the elder, the angel says, the elder says, to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. It is Jesus who opens the book of life because Jesus destroyed the power of death and freed us from the fear of death. Jesus conquered death for us. That's a high priest you can trust, is it not? Jesus also conquered sin for us. Verse 16. We're going to take a moment and, and kind of unpack verse 16 and then, then draw our attention. It will help, it'll give us a framework by which we can, we can understand more readily verses 17 and 18. Verse 16, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. The word that's translated as give help really means to take hold of, to grab a hold of. It's used in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9, where it says, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. He took them, he, he gave them help. Think of that. That God, at that point, he reached out and he took the hand and he rescued uh, Israel by taking them out of the land of Egypt, out of that slavery, out of that bondage. He took a hold of them. He gave them that aid. That's the same word that's, that's used. He gave them that help. And he speaks to the descendant of Abraham. 
He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Not just the descendants, as though he just saves a group, but to each individual descendant of Abraham. He gives that help. He takes hold of them. But who are the descendants of Abraham? Now he's writing to Jews, right? Who are in this inter- uh, covenant period in this transition period and they're very much aware of the old administration of the covenant of grace but yet they believe in Jesus but they don't know all that this means and so he's saying to them he's helping them understand and they need to know what this idea of a descendant of Abraham was and Jews at that time there were many who would claim that as their assurance of salvation of course I'm saved I'm a descendant of Abraham remember John the Baptist is is preaching a gospel of repentance and he says in Matthew chapter 3 verse 7 when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourself we have Abraham for our father for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham he looks at these Jews who found their comfort in the fact of their their uh, physical lineage and they thought that that saved him he says no 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 you've got to prove that you're descendants of Abraham with repentance you've got to show that relationship because God can raise up uh, uh, from rocks descendants to Abraham if he chooses to But he's saying to them, you're not a descendant of Abraham just because you're born from him. Remember, even in the Old Testament, those who had been circumcised were told that their physical circumcision wasn't sufficient. They needed their heart circumcised. They needed a change inside in order to receive the blessings of Abraham. We read in John chapter 8 that Jesus is talking maybe to some of these same individuals. John chapter 8 and verse 39 he says, then answered, uh, <clears throat> they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, well, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So Jesus is pointing out to them that they're not descendants of Abraham, right? No uncertain terms. He says, Abraham is not your father. Why? Because they're not trusting in Jesus. And in verse 44, he points out to them who their father is. Verse 44, he says, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What is Jesus telling them? He's telling them the same thing that John the Baptist had said, and that is, you aren't a descendant of Abraham just because you're in the physical lineage. You must be of the faith of Abraham. This becomes clear as we look at passages like Romans chapter 4, as the Apostle Paul is talking to uh, Gentiles in particular, (laughs) but talking to them about Abraham in verse 11, and he says of Abraham, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. What's he saying? He's saying Abraham received the rite of circumcision, okay, so that he might be the father of you who are not circumcised to the Gentiles. 
so that Abraham can be the father also of Gentiles. And then in verse uh, 16, he again sharpens that up. He says, for this reason, it's by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only of those who are of the law, that is the physical, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul, who wrote Romans, also wrote the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, he's super, super clear, in case there is any question. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Right? Who are the sons of Abraham? Those who believe. Now, Ephesians tightens this all up and, and shows us in chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, these Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he himself is our peace, who made both groups, that is, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The law of commandments contained in ordinances speaks of the, the rites and rituals of the old, old administration of the covenant of grace. And Jesus destroyed that so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, Jews and Gentiles who believe in one body to God, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. You understand what he's saying? He's saying what makes you a descendant of Abraham is faith. And those who are of the physical line of Abraham needed faith. And those who are Gentiles needed faith. And that brings them together. So that we could put it this way. Jews need faith, not just a heritage. Gentiles are children of Abraham who, Gentiles who believe are children of Abraham and are entitled to the promise. But both of them must have this faith. That's what verse 16 is getting at. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham, to those who believe. That's why this sermon is entitled, Trust Jesus, our High Priest. Now, forgive me if that's a, a little convoluted, but I, I want us to understand how important this idea of faith is. Because it's faith that, that uh, helps us to trust that Jesus conquered sin for us, and he conquered sin for us through his substitutionary death. Therefore, he had to be, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation. That's a great word, isn't it? I mean, hardly a day goes by that I don't use it in some sentence, right? When do we ever use the word propitiation, you know? Justification I use at least sometimes with Microsoft Word, justify right, justify left, or center, right? I get that. But propitiation? You know, what is the, the, the swift keystrokes to, 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 for propitiation on, on your keyboard? I, I don't know. What is propitiation? Well, propitiation means to appease wrath. It's to appease wrath. It, the uh, Greek word that it comes from is hilaskamai. Uh, and hilaskamai means to conciliate, to recognize that there's, there's a break in a relationship. And that's why we talk about propitiation. 
Propitiation is to appease the wrath of God. Expiation means to, to take away the guilt. Well, it isn't that our salvation is that God just takes away our guilt. No, our guilt remains. We are always guilty, but Jesus pays the penalty for that guilt. Jesus propitiates for us. Jesus uh, takes upon himself the wrath of God. He appeases the wrath of God so that God's justice is never at odds with his mercy. But they're brought together. His justice is completely fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's what propitiation means. So that he becomes a faithful high priest. And by faithful high priest, I'm I'm thinking more of of what we see in uh, Romans chapter 3. We're all familiar with verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he goes on, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is that appeasement of wrath in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just and the justifier. It's not just if he's, if he's only just, but he's not going to justify, then he's going to condemn everybody because everybody deserves to be condemned for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But he's just and the justifier. He's not just the justifier to where he just forgives and, and, and there's, there's no justice of God. But Jesus being the propitiation Jesus being the sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. Jesus being the one who pays the full debt for every one of our sins. He's our propitiation. He's our substitution. He took our place. So that he conquered sin for us by being a substitutionary death and also through his ready assistance. Look at verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered... He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now we saw that he's the faithful and merciful high priest. Merciful and faithful high priest. We saw that he's faithful, but he's also merciful. He is merciful to us because he knows what we're dealing with. Jesus was tempted in what he suffered. Temptation is simply the opportunity to sin. Think of it that way. Temptation is the opportunity to sin. That's why the, the word for temptation is the same word that's, that's used for uh, trial. Because a trial is a temptation, is it not? A trial is an opportunity for me to sin. A trial is an opportunity to turn, turn my back on God. A trial is an opportunity for me to follow the advice of Job's wife. Curse God and die. That's what a trial is. Suffering was an opportunity for Jesus to turn his back upon his father, was it not? He was tempted without sin. He didn't give in to that. But he knows what it's like for us, so he's merciful. And he comes to our aid. He comes to the aid of those who are tempted. How does he come to our aid? 1 Corinthians 10.13 There is therefore now no temptation, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you see what he's saying? There is not an opportunity to sin that is too great for you because Christ comes to your aid. In whatever temptation that you're facing, that opportunity for you to turn your back on God, turn instead to Jesus, believing that he is a merciful 
high priest. He understands and he will come to your aid. I'll have to ask uh, Chris if this is a, a true statement, but I've heard it many times that an attorney who represents himself has a fool for a client. And I got a, a thumbs up from the experienced uh, attorney and judge. He says, yes, that's absolutely true. And we get why, right? Even if he's a really good attorney, he still needs someone to advocate on his behalf in the court. Has to. Can't do it himself. That's just not going to work. <clears throat> if that's true in a court system, how much more true is it for us who will one day stand before God Almighty? We can't advocate for ourselves, can we? We need an advocate. We need a high priest who will go before us and will mediate for us. Will you trust Jesus today? I want to ask this in two ways. The first way, maybe you've been a believer for years and you, you've put your trust in Jesus and you believe he's died for your sins. And, and I would ask you, will you trust Jesus to be your high priest today? Because don't you face the temptation of forgetting? Don't you sometimes trust your own righteousness instead? Today, trust Jesus as your high priest. But it's also possible that you've come here today and maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you've never come to that place where you've said, I need Jesus. And maybe God through his spirit has somehow awakened in you a sense and a knowledge that I need Jesus as my high priest today. Will you trust him as your high priest today? We say, Father, please forgive me because of the work of Jesus, my mediator. He stands between me and you. Will you deal with me according to him? And ask him that this day. Will you trust Jesus as your high priest because he conquered sin for you and he conquered death for you? Friends, may every one of us walk out of here today believing. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. We pray that you will search our hearts. And if there's any who needs to pray, Father, forgive me, for I've sinned. Will you please forgive me because of Jesus' death on my behalf? I pray that they would pray that even now. And for each one of us, Lord, as we live every single day, we continually need Jesus as our advocate. Grant that we may trust him as such, knowing that he's conquered death for us, we need not fear. Knowing that he's conquered sin, so we need not fail. We pray that you will grant us this grace for his namesake. Amen.